Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the virtual voyage, we were in Shechem at Joseph's tomb. Before we continue on, let's take a moment to orient ourselves. Shechem is about 30 miles north of Jerusalem, which is where we've been staying. Jerusalem is roughly in the middle of Israel, so it's been a great home base for us. And we can make day trips from Jerusalem to basically anywhere in Israel. You have to remember that it would only take you about six hours to drive from the north to the south of Israel. It's a really tiny country, somewhere around the size of New Jersey. But I was just looking back, and I noticed that this is our 35th tour. 35 tours in this nation that take six hours to drive from top to bottom. Try to find any other place in the world like that. In my experience, outside of Israel, it's impossible. Okay, so back to Shechem. Today, it's known as Nablus. So if you saw signs as we were coming into town with Nablus on them, we aren't in the wrong place. It's just another name for the site. It's the modern name, I guess you could say. And Nablus is currently in the West Bank, which is an area within Israel that's disputed. Maybe you've heard a little bit about it. Israel and the Palestinians both claim control over it. There are three areas within the West Bank, Area A, Area B, and Area C. So Area A is under Palestinian control, and it's made up of some random spots within the West Bank. They're not geographically uh, contiguous. So various unconnected spots make up Area A, and because Area A is under Palestinian control, It's the area that the Jews don't want to venture into, although it does contain many significant religious locations for the Jews, some of which we've we've been to, actually most of which we've been to. Jericho, uh, Bethlehem, Hebron. Hebron was the tomb of the patriarchs that we went and saw. And then Nablus, Shechem, uh, that we're here at right now, are all in Area A. And then there's Area B, which is shared by Israel and Palestine. And then finally, Area C. It's controlled by Israel. Now, there's a complicated history with the West Bank, and you may or may not be aware of it. And I'm planning to dive into that history on a future tour when we'll have the chance to discuss something called the Six-Day War, which ties into the West Bank's history. It's a really important war, and I'm hoping that we're going to be able to meet someone special who will tell us all about it. All that goes to say is that Nablus is in this disputed area, And it's not always safe for Jews to come into Nablus. Well, we were also here in Shechem as a whole, so let's talk a little bit about what we've seen at Shechem. We've seen a number of awesome sites. One was Jacob's Well, which is where Jesus talked with the Samaritan woman concerning living water. You'll remember that we went into the basement of that church and got to see what we believe to be Jacob's Well. And this is the place where Jesus most likely talked to the Samaritan woman about her need for living water. She was having to come every single day, maybe multiple times a day when it was hot, to get water and have to carry it back to her house. And then Jesus offers her this gift of living water, 
where she'll never have to thirst again. We saw Joseph's tomb. Joseph didn't want to be buried in Egypt, which is where the Israelites were at for quite a long time. Joseph wanted his bones brought back to Israel. He made his brothers swear an oath that they would do this. And the Israelites fulfilled that oath, although it took a while. So we got to see Joseph's tomb, or what we think to be his tomb. So that was pretty special. You know, Joseph is extremely significant to the Jews, and I'm glad we had a chance to see that site. I guess I'll just make a side comment here. The Jews actually have a blessing for their sons and for their daughters that the fathers of the household give to their children every Sabbath or every Shabbat. You'll remember that we experienced a Jewish Shabbat a while back on one of our first tours. And when the father blesses the sons, it goes something like this. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And if you know the end of Genesis, you'll recognize those names as the names of Joseph's two sons. And I find it interesting that the Jews ask God to make their sons like Joseph's two sons. Instead of mentioning Joseph's name, they mention his heritage, his two sons. And that's something most parents want, every parent wants. They want their children to be their heritage and to represent them well. Joseph received that. And there's something else that's interesting. There's no tribe of Joseph. Instead of a tribe of Joseph, you'll remember the, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So Joseph doesn't have a tribe after his own name, but he's doubly blessed. Both of his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, became the heads of tribes. So maybe you're starting to see now why Joseph is such a respected figure for the Jews and why his tomb is so important to them. There's also something else important that happened here at Shechem. Joshua and the Israelites assembled here and renewed their covenant with God after they had come back into this land out of exile. You'll remember that Joshua was one of the key leaders of the Israelites before the reign of the judges and eventually the kings. So during this time, the Israelites were struggling to leave idol worship. When they came back to Israel after being in Egypt and wandering in the desert, they saw many pagans in their land who were worshiping false gods. And it was tempting to join them for many reasons. I'm sure we can relate to this in some ways too, right? We see our culture around us participating in wickedness, and it's tempting to join the wickedness. That's what the Israelites experience. They see these people worshiping false gods, and they want to join them. And then on top of that, some of the men found pagan women to be, to be beautiful. They, they saw women that they, they desired and wanted to marry. But God had told them not to intermarry. But most importantly, God had given them the promise that they were his people. They were not supposed to be off worshiping false gods instead of the one true God. And Joshua warns them that they will be destroyed if they continue in idol worship. Well, as a spoiler, that did happen. But at this time, with Joshua here in this moment, the people affirm that they, like Joshua and his household, will serve God. So Joshua then makes a covenant on behalf of the people right here in this area at Shechem, where we now stand. Here's what Joshua tells the Israelites. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, 
and choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I hope that you'll remember Joshua's words when you think back to our time here in Shechem. The Lord God alone is to be served. Shechem is full of so much biblical history, and I wish we could consider each passage in the Bible about this place. Unfortunately, due to time constraints, there are only 24 hours in a day. We can only hit the major ones. But I'm thinking we may have the opportunity to come back here in a few tours, so we'll see. But before we move on, there's one last thing I want to highlight. Let's think back to when Abraham wasn't Abraham, but was Abram. And we'll remember that God called him to leave the land he had known for his whole life and go to a new land, which God would show him. It was an act of faith on Abraham's part, on Abram's part. This land would become Israel. So in obedience, Abram sets out from Haran, which is his home. He's 75 years old at this time. And Genesis details that he stops at Shechem. And God says this as he stops in this area where we, virtual voyagers, are also standing. God says, to your offspring, I will give this land. I will give this land. According to the Bible, this right here is the first spot God talks to Abram once he's back in Israel. Just imagine Abram is traveling, going to this new land, and he stops here at Shechem, where we are. And God tells him that this land is the land that will belong to his offspring. Shechem, the first stop of the first Jew in the land of Israel. That's pretty special. I hope that you've enjoyed our tour of Shechem, because I, I certainly have. It's a special place for so many reasons that we've just talked about. So I enjoy any chance I get to come here. And believe me, there are even more reasons for its specialness than just these. Well, we're going to hop back on the bus and head to our next stop. We're going to continue heading north for about 60 miles. It should be around an hour and a half by bus. We're going to stop at Nazareth, which is a name you may recognize. It's Jesus' hometown, and I'm excited to show you all around there. For now, let's all find our seats and buckle in so we can continue here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. While we drive, let's continue to work on our Hebrew. We've been learning some key phrases so that we can kind of get around while we're here in Israel. So far, we know how to ask someone if they understand English so that we can maybe then switch to English and get some help. For a guy, you would say, Ata mavin englit. And for a girl, it would be at mavina englit. So depending on if you're speaking to a guy or a girl, then you would have to change that phrase. And we know how to interpret their responses. If they respond with low, that means no, they don't understand English. Ken means yes, they do. And katsat means a little bit. So you might be able to just ask them for a, for a direction or, or some help, just a, just, a, just a tiny bit. We also know how to say, I understand a little Hebrew because you do. For a guy, it would be ani mavin katsat hevrit. And for a girl, 
אני מבינה כיצד הברית. So we've also learned how to ask someone how they are doing. It's always good to open up a conversation this way and get a feel for how someone is doing before you ask them more. You'll remember that if we want to ask this for a guy, it's מה שלום כך? And for a girl, it's מה שלום איך? And then we learn two responses we might receive to that question, which are לא טוב, which is not good, and טוב, which is good. Now, we're going to learn to ask how much money something is. This is important because you are going to find yourself in situations where you need to know that. And there's a special secret I'll tell you. If you can ask that question, how much money something is, if you can ask that in Hebrew, not English, you won't get taken advantage of in the market for the most part. See, the owners of the shops that we've walked by, say, in the in the Jewish or Arab quarters of the old city of Jerusalem, need to make money. And they know there are plenty of tourists they can make money from. And a lot of times, they overcharge American tourists who come and want some fun souvenirs to take back home. But not only that, there's also an interesting cultural difference in Israel versus back in the United States. When we walk into a shop in America and see an item we like, we look at the price tag and then we see it's a set price, and we go with that. We don't question it. If a bouncy ball is 25 cents, we pay the 25 cents. If a baseball glove is $49.99, we don't question that. We walk to the cash register and pay $49.99. In Israel, you can bargain. Most Americans don't realize this, so they just ask for the price when they walk into the shop in Israel, or maybe they see the price tag, and they don't question it. But that's the fun part of being in Israel. You get to question the prices. You get to bargain. Once my siblings found this out, they became bargaining masters. Uh, soon it was a competition among the siblings as to who could get better deals. Some nights they'd come back from the market with groceries for dinner and start bragging about a deal until another one claimed they bargained harder. And soon it was a bargaining war. I remember once going to, uh, going to a shop and getting a souvenir on one of my last days in Israel. And it just happened that my brother also ventured to that same shop later that day. And he got a deal of about three shekels better. That hurt a lot. All that goes to say is that you can bargain here at shops if you want to try for a lower price. And sometimes the shop owner won't go for it. But some persistence can usually save you a few shekels. And like I said, being able to ask for the price in Hebrew can also help. So here's how we ask, how much is it? In Hebrew, kama ze ole, kama ze ole. Now, that isn't going to do you much good unless you can understand some numbers when the seller responds. So let's learn how to count the numbers one through five, just this time in Hebrew. One is achat, two is shtime, three is shalosh, Four is arba, and five is chamesh. Again, that's achat, shtime, shalosh, arba, chamesh. Let's say it together. One, achat. Two, shtime. Three, shalosh. Four, arba, 
five, Hamesh. Now that we have the basics down, let's practice. Here's a scenario. You walk into a shop and find a really fun, squishy frog toy that you think your young nephew back home would love. You want to ask the store owner how much money it is. What do you say? Yes, comma ze ole. I guess you could ask it with some inflection, comma ze ole? Now the store owner responds with arba. You make the translation. Yep, arba is four. So now you know it's four shekels and that translates to just under a dollar and 50 cents. You can afford that for your nephew's souvenir, so you hand over four shekel and that's it, success. Now, at some point, you're probably going to have to switch to English. If you want to bargain, maybe try to get three shekels for the frog toy, or maybe you want to ask him further questions about the quality of the frog toy. But you have a good start. And, and trust me, the store owners never think it's odd when an American walks in and speaks a little Hebrew and then switches to English. They like it, actually, because they can see you're practicing your Hebrew. Well, now that we've reviewed our Hebrew and learned a new phrase, let's turn our attention to our next stop, Nazareth, here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. We still have some time in the bus before we arrive, so let's talk about this stop. You probably have heard of Nazareth when people have referenced Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth, or maybe you just know Nazareth as the place where Jesus grew up. Of course, he wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, which is a spot we visited, although I guess now that was quite a while back. Remember, Mary and Joseph were in Nazareth when Caesar Augustus issued a census around the time that Mary was set to give birth to Jesus. So they had to leave, even though she was very pregnant, and they had to head to Bethlehem to register for the census. Because Joseph was of the family of David, he had to go to the city of David, being Bethlehem. So Jesus, at that time, is born in Bethlehem. But then King Herod finds out that wise men from his palace went to Jesus because they saw a star in the sky. Maybe you remember those wise men or have heard uh, the song about them as well, that Christmas carol that's so popular. Well, Herod is very angry about this. And in an attempt to kill Jesus, he orders that all the male children under two years old are to be killed. He kind of just does a blanket order and hopes that as he kills all of the children under two, he'll also kill Jesus. But Joseph had been given a divine dream from God where he was told to leave and go to Egypt to escape Herod. The family stayed in Egypt until King Herod died, and then finally they got to return to Nazareth. I'm sure Joseph and Mary thought they would never make it back to their hometown, but God's hand was on them, and he brought them back safely. Now, in all the four Gospels in the New Testament, there's a lapse in the account of Jesus as a teenager and young man before his public ministry. So we have to fill in some gaps there. Both Matthew and Mark refer to Jesus as the son of the carpenter, Joseph. So as Jesus grew up in Nazareth, we have to imagine that he worked with his father doing carpentry. But was it really carpentry like we know it today? I'd have to argue no. Most people who know about ancient Israel would agree because very few things, including houses, were made of wood in Jesus' day. 
Israel's in the desert. And there are some places that have a lot of trees, maybe in the north, but the area of Nazareth would not have had a lot of trees. So it doesn't make sense for Jesus to be a carpenter of wood. He and Joseph would have had no work. Jesus was most likely a stonemason, as that is what houses were made of. And the reason Jesus gets called a carpenter is due to translation. When the Bible was translated from its original languages in Europe, there were a lot of trees around. So the translators made the choice to refer to Jesus as a carpenter, immediately causing readers to think of someone who works with wood, chop down trees. And that interpretation has stuck with this all the way up to today. So that's my reasoning for believing Jesus to be a, a carpenter of stone, I guess you could say. But of course, do your own research and come to your own conclusion. So back to Nazareth. While we're here, we're going to visit Nazareth Village, which is a place where people have recreated uh, Nazareth from Jesus' day, so first century Nazareth. Then we'll also drive about five minutes to an archaeological site, the city of Sepphoris, also known as the Jewel of Galilee. It's actually very likely that Jesus would have worked in this town, which was larger and richer uh, compared to Nazareth. And Sepphoris is just about three miles from Nazareth. It was a major site of trade. So that actually makes sense for Jesus spending a lot of time there in his younger days. In some ways, Sepphoris is almost more exciting than Nazareth. Perhaps some of the stones we'll see there were even hewn by Jesus. Well, we're about to pull into Nazareth, but we're out of time for now, so make sure to come back next time as we see some of the places Jesus lived and worked before his public ministry. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our adventure.